Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. Hi guys, welcome to this episode of Arabiyat. I'm particularly excited about this one because I think the topic is very important and it deserves a lot more attention than it receives. I'm talking about participating in electoral politics and that goes beyond the most visible form, which is presidential. There's also local and state, which a lot of people are not aware of. As a whole, it's known that Americans are not that interested in engaging in politics. But if you break it down, you'll find that some groups are more engaged than others. And in this episode, we're going to talk about where Arab Americans in general fall within that spectrum. So I'm very excited to introduce my next guest to you because I could not have found anyone better to have this discussion with. His name is Dr. Jim Zogby, and he is the president of the Arab American Institute, a D.C.-based organization which serves as a political and policy research arm of the Arab American community. For decades, he's worked on Capitol Hill trying to influence policy in a very difficult environment, to say the least. And most recently, he was a member of the five-person team that Bernie Sanders picked to serve on the platform drafting committee for the Democratic Party. And he was the first Arab American to have ever served in that capacity. So without further ado, welcome, Dr. Jim Zogby. Uh, thank you. Thanks, Linda. <laughs> so let's just let's go in first into the most exciting part of what I just talked about, which was that you were part of that five person team that Bernie Sanders picked to form the DNC uh, platform. Can you talk about that? How did you get involved with that? Well, look, l- let me go back to the beginning. I was deputy campaign manager for Jesse Jackson in 1984. It was the first presidential campaign that actually included Arab Americans as a group. Uh, there had been a Lebanese committee for Carter and a Syrian Lebanese committee for Reagan early on, but there would never been an Arab American committee. And we did with Jackson. The turnout was amazing. People were so excited. Jackson's slogan that year was, our time has come, and people in our community felt that it was the same for us. It was a, an effort to liberate us from the shackles of, of exclusion and to bring us into the mainstream. Well, it didn't quite work out that way. Actually, to the, it, the contrary, the more organized we became, the more concerned that folks in the pro-Israel community became that Arab Americans were going to become a problem. And so we actually had candidates returning money and candidates rejecting our endorsement, uh, et cetera. But we took the work seriously, and in 85, right after the the Jackson campaign, we launched the Institute to to basically to institutionalize what we'd started. Um, Our goals were simple, voter registration, voter engagement and mobilization, getting people out to vote, getting them to run for office and supporting those who did run for office, um, and developing local and national strategies to bring our issues uh, into the mainstream. Because politics is about ultimately power, and it's not about justice, unfortunately. Um, If politics were about justice, the Indians would be running America. It's not. It's about power, and power in America is about electoral politics. We didn't have any, and so we got run over all the time. And the issues were not just, like I said, national, but they were local. They were the Arab community in Dearborn literally being used as bait in a mayoral campaign 
with the mayor trying to run on what, what to do about the Arab problem. They were problems in San Francisco and in Chicago and in New York where Arab grocers were in, in, in large numbers uh, in the communities but were seen uh, by, by some as a problem, not an asset. And in other areas of the country where the numbers of the community were very large, there was no access to city government and so no ability to get basic needs met. So we took it seriously and it worked. In 1985, there were 700 registered voters in Dearborn, Arab American. Uh, today, 18,000, something like that. The president of the city council is an Arab American woman. Four of the seven members are Arab American. We have Arab Americans elected in Patterson. We have Arab Americans running for national office and local office in, in cities and states around the country. In, in, in the Democratic Party, in 1985, 86, 87, 88, we tried to get the party to recognize an Arab American Democratic club that was based on our, our mobilization in the Jackson campaign. They wouldn't do it. They wouldn't even meet with us. Today, Arab Americans are, are on the state executive boards of, of parties in California. You have an Arab American caucus in the Democratic Party. You've got it in, uh, in other states as well, in Pennsylvania and in New Jersey and in, uh, it now in, um, in Illinois and in Michigan. You've got Arab American involvement in the party. Um, we didn't have it before. I, um, after being told I couldn't be in the Democratic Party, uh, after I raised the Palestinian issue in 88, was in, invited by Ron Brown to be a, a Democratic National Committee member um, in 1992. And I today am on the Executive Committee of the party, and I chair the Resolutions Committee of the party. So that's a very long way of getting into the fact that when Bernie asked me to do this, it's because I have party experience. It's because uh, I, I've paid my dues in the party. And other Arab Americans have as well, which is why they're in leadership roles in different state uh, state party structures. So uh, Arab Americans have uh, earned their stripes. I mean, it's not like you get plucked out of out of nowhere. You pay your dues, you work hard for 20, 30 years, and you're in a leadership role. And I'm proud of the fact that we've got people all over the country playing this kind of role. Um, and uh, that's why Bernie picked me. Uh, he picked me because he knows we have a strong and organized Arab American community. Uh, he knows that I know the party and the inner workings of the party. Uh, and he knows that I know how to fight for justice and I know how to fight for the issues that we care about. So uh, before we get into, I want you to talk a little bit about your experience at the platform committee drafting meetings. Uh, but can you talk about a couple of the more prominent Arab American people in politics? I don't think a lot of our listeners are aware that there are this many Arab Americans in, uh, in positions of power. Um, well, yeah, look, we've, we've got uh, uh, five Arab American members of Congress. Um, some of them are very strong on issues we care about. Actually, few of them are. Many of them aren't, but they're good people, and they try to help us on issues that we care about. There's a, a folks down in Louisiana right now who are Republicans. I don't agree with them on a lot of issues, but I do know that when we have needs and go to them, they actually will be responsive to, to us. We've got some young Arab Americans running for office. There's a Matt Hines in Tucson, Arizona, running for Congress right now. He is great. We've got some really great state reps. In, in California, you've also got a couple of mayors. You've got some city council people. 
we've started a program to bring Arab American elected officials to the Middle East because in many instances they've not gone before. Um, there's Rashida Tlaib who served two ter terms in the Michigan State House and I think is eyeing a future in Congress. We want to work with her and continue to support her. There's folks like Faye Beydoun who uh, in Michigan who is on the state executive board of the party, um, is a vice chair of the state party. Um, she's earned her stripes. She's been working for a long time, both in the business community, but also with the Arab community um, on, on all of these uh, all of these issues. Can um, I ask you? Okay, so yeah. that's great. I, mean, I could just go on. I mean, if you look at our website, AIUSA.org, we have a list of the Arab American elected officials, and there's some really, really cool young people. So are these... I have the impression that Arab kind of has a stigma attached to it. In politics, is this the case? Are they marketing themselves as Arabs, or are they just happen to be Arab and blending as like years white? Ago, years ago, I remember having a discussion with Ralph Nader when he got in trouble over something. It was during the uh, the Reagan administration. They were Arab baiting him. Uh, one of the secretaries, I think Secretary of the Interior, called him a, a, some dirty Arab or something. And he called us up to defend him. And I was like, I realized then that, that we were weak. We couldn't do anything to help him. And when I asked him to do something for us, he said, you can't help me. It's really hard for me to, to do something to help you. Um, and I realized then that I had to create a situation where we could turn being an Arab from a liability into an asset. Um, and when you see uh, Tim Kaine, um, former governor, former senator of Virginia, courting the Arab American community in Virginia, or when you see politicians in Michigan or politicians in Ohio or politicians in Pennsylvania courting the Arab American community, it's because they know that there are votes there that matter and that this is a community that actually can make a difference in winning or losing an election. So yeah, uh, with politicians, it, it, whether Arab American or not, uh, they will come to us and say, I'm running for Congress. Can you help me? Can you raise money for me? If we can't, then of course they're not going to pay attention to us and to the concerns that we have. But if we can, then they'll know that they can count on us for support. Um, and, and that's something we've got to do. So the answer is it's a mixed bag. There are Arab Americans who we've been able to support who in turn uh, will be very supportive. There are Arab Americans that we haven't supported and they'll say, look, it's not worth it. It's you know I got here and my career was built without you, and I'm not going to be uh, uh, I'm not going to fall on my sword for you. Our job is to strengthen those who who we can strengthen so that we'll have allies. Allies require you doing something to help them. That's what what being an ally is all about. Not them helping you, but it's also you helping them. And a big part of that, as you said, is. Raising money for candidates, right? Raising money and getting out the vote, of course. Getting Both out the vote. Now we're in this election cycle that's very unique, obviously, with different new unconventional candidates, Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump, um, and a lot of anger at so-called rigged system and this idea that there's too much money in politics. I mean, for those who are interested in now, this is a multifaceted question because a lot of people are angry about money in politics. But on the Arab front, I want to bring up the idea of the two parties that we have, Republican and Democrat, um, being very both very pro-war and a lot of Arabs being unhappy with the choices that they have. Um, 
for those who are considering going green or going third party, what would you say to them? Um, I'd say, look, it, it, it's your personal choice and I understand it, but I've made a different decision. And my decision is that while I don't agree with, uh, with Hillary Clinton on, on a number of issues, uh, domestic and foreign, she is for me the far better choice and, uh, and I will encourage people to consider that. Look, politics is never perfect. It's always about uh, making a choice. And the choices are never between absolute good and absolute evil. This is maybe the closest I've ever seen to an election where you've got, actually got absolute evil on one side. Donald Trump has done enormous damage already to our country by empowering people who are bigots and making them feel comfortable displaying their bigotry in a public way. We had gotten to the point where I mean, people scoff at political correctness, but there was one good thing about political correctness, and that was that people could be racist, but knew they had to shut their mouths. Now they don't have to shut their mouths anymore. They feel they can do it in public. That is wrong, and yet Donald Trump has encouraged that. Hillary Clinton does have problems. I mean, folks don't trust her. She has advocated for war. Uh, she has not been supportive on Palestine. I don't think her position on civil liberties is what I'd like it to be. Her position on health care reform, et cetera, is again not where I'd want it to be, as her position on corporate America is not where I'd want it to be. But the coalition that we are part of the coalition that was the Sanders coalition is in the Democratic Party. I cannot abandon my coalition. So while I think that we can work with Secretary Clinton, and our, our coalition is also working with Secretary Clinton, we've got to be with our coalition. We want African Americans to support us. we got to support them. We want Latinos to support us. We can't abandon them. This is a choice between a candidate who I believe is evil and has represented evil and brought evil to the to the forefront of our politics but on the other hand a candidate who while imperfect does represent the coalition that we are a part of we can't just jump ship right now out of our a, a false sense of our own purity um, and then you know vote for the you know a, a third or fourth or fifth party candidate or stay home and not vote at all if Donald Trump wins this election enormous damage will be done to America and to our community. We can't let that happen. We have a chance to fight within a Clinton coalition. We don't have a chance to fight when Donald Trump, if Donald Trump becomes president. And can you break down a little bit about what is the difference exactly? I mean, it may be obvious, it may seem obvious, but really breaking down what is the difference between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton when it comes to the Arab American community? And I want to caveat that by saying a lot of Arab Americans maybe are just voting on domestic issues and some are really concerned with foreign issues. So, you know, how do we differentiate them and clearly state that there is a huge difference between these two candidates? Okay. With regard to Donald Trump, there is no coherent ideology there. And Republicans, conservative Republicans, are right to abandon him as they have been because he doesn't stand for Republican principles. Frankly, I don't know what he stands for at all. I think he is an authoritarian personality who has exploited fear and rage and a sense of alienation that people have from the mainstream of, of our politics. He's exploited that fear and built a movement 
um, of folks who basically are what we've seen in history before. The only thing they're missing is the pitchforks and the the torches at night, uh, marching on, um, you know, on uh, city hall to burn it down. You know, I, I watched the Republican convention and it scared me. I watched the Trump rallies and I read about what people in the Trump movement say. It scares me. This is a movement of of angry, uh, alienated people whose fears and insecurities have been exploited by Trump and and mobilized into a political movement. That's dangerous. So I don't even think that we have a clear sense of where Donald Trump stands on the economy or where Donald Trump stands on foreign policy. He said every which sort of thing. Some people in our community say, well, you said he'd be neutral on Israel. Yeah, he said that, and that's on his website. But then he's got his chief advisors, our folks who are going around saying that Donald Trump is is the most pro-Israel, uh, will be the most pro-Israel candidate ever. And he gave a speech at APEC that was absolutely frightening. Um, the, Trump is not about issues. It's about the meta-issues. It's about the psychology that he has encouraged, the hate for Muslims, the hate for uh, Hispanics, the hate and the fear of anyone other and different that, that he has used to prey off of the fear of the white middle class. And, and that, to me, is what this is election about. It's about will we allow the leader of what amounts to, in my mind, a, an almost a brown shirt movement of, of, of anger and fear uh, and resentment, or will we work for a candidate on the Democratic side who, while we may not agree with her on everything, at least provides us with the opportunity to work within a coalition and fight for change over the next four years? Okay, so I'm going to go back to the 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 platform committee, um, the drafting of the plat- Democratic platform. So I'm going to play a clip of you making the case to the Democratic Party to change the language on Palestine. Let's mm-hmm. play. Let's play that clip. Just three words I want to ask you about. The, the, the first is the, the question of settlements. Um, you mentioned uh, unilateral actions should be avoided. Um, are settlements unilateral actions? And secondly, you, you mentioned that Israel has a right to defend itself, but would you agree or disagree that that self-defense uh, has been disproportionate? Um, and thirdly, on the question of occupation, um, it has been recognized by every U.S. administration that there is an occupation, and there are pieces of legislation circulating that sort of want to rewrite that notion, much to the dismay and concern of people literally around the world, to sort of define a a post-67 Israel, uh, which is itself a unilateral action taken by our Congress that redefines the borders unilaterally. Would you not feel that it is more important to include the word occupation, which our president, this current president has mentioned, and every previous president has mentioned, as a way simply of clarifying that to get to two states, an occupation has to end? So were you surprised that the Democratic platform was unable to take the step of just simply changing the language on describing Palestine, what's going on in Palestine as an occupation? I actually was. I thought it was it was strange and disconcerting because I looked around the room at the people who were on the committee uh, on the Clinton side, 
and they're smart people and they're people who I know know it's an occupation and they're they are people who I know oppose settlements and yet there's something weird that happens in our politics where smart people take their brains out of their heads and stick it somewhere and they operate with what they think is their political head and their political head makes really crappy judgment calls in this instance they thought oh you know they, this is what they said to me they said you know if we do this Sheldon Adelson's going to spend money to defeat us. And I said, he's going to spend money to defeat you anyway. And anyone that he influences was never going to vote for Secretary Clinton to begin with. So what's the fear? But there's this irrational fear about Israel that we can't cross Israel because it, it's not good politics. And that's where Arab Americans have to step into the mix. Our numbers in many states are equal to or greater than the number of Jewish voters. But we've not built that clout. We've never defeated a candidate uh, be with our clout. They give much more money than we do. There's no question about that. But I don't believe at the end of the day that money is all that it's about. It's also about the myth and the perception that they can defeat you if they want to. And frankly, you know, that myth is one that has taken hold, but it's just not true. Candidates have lost elections like Paul Findlay. It's always thrown out to be the story. Findlay lost because he got moved from a, a Republican district to a Democratic district. He was congressman in Illinois in a district that was 60% Republican. It got redistricted into one that was majority Democrat. That's why he lost. He actually raised more money than his opponent. That's, it wasn't the money that beat him, but we allowed APEC to claim that they beat him. Can you explain APAC to people who may not 100% be aware? APAC is the pro-Israel lobby that organizes uh, the PACs the pro-Israel PACs to defend and support candidates who are pro-Israel. They've created a myth out of their power that makes politicians afraid to cross them, which is why you get a stupid platform. But look, even within the platform as it was written, this was the best platform on Israel-Palestine ever. And it really was. I mean, the language on Palestine calling for dignity and independence, that never existed in any platform previous to this. Um, if you read the 2012 or 8 or 4 platforms, they were basically talking about Palestine, uh, Palestinian rights, as subsidiary to, to Jewish rights. It was like, we, we have to do this so Israel will be secure. This time it talks about Palestinians deserving dignity and independence and freedom on their own. So there was advance there. and Even the, the language in the platform that called for opposition to BDS when I challenged them on that, they said in the public record that we don't oppose BDS. We only oppose delegitimizing Israel. And if BDS is not delegitimizing Israel, then it's okay. And so, frankly, I think that they knew they were wrong. And they were trying to find a way to, to not alienate the, the Sanders folks in the platform that they, that they did develop, uh, while at the same time trying to court Israel. That meant that there was a little more power we had than we, we knew we had. And I think that it's something that we should acknowledge and build on. We've, we've got a big job ahead of us in the next four to eight years. we got to work harder to bring people over to our side. So you think that the BDS, the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement is actually making an impact on the Huge. government? Huge. And it's one that we have to continue to grow and strengthen. I think it's a, it is a nonviolent smart form of resistance that really has to be built on and developed. Okay, we know that Arabs are considered white in the U.S. Census, and I want to understand, how are you 
taking data on Arabs and understanding how they're voting or how they do anything politically when we're considered white? Well, look, racial categories are racist to begin with. I am not in favor of us having a separate category because I think it's stupid on the racial side. The reason you have race categories is for affirmative action. And I support affirmative action, but I don't think that it should have been expanded to include all of the groups that it does include. It should only include groups that are historically discriminated against and have a pattern, a systemic pattern of discrimination that they can point to. That would be African Americans, it would be Native Americans, it would be Latinos, and it would be women. Um, beyond that, I think that we, you know, when you expand it to include everybody but Europeans and Arabs, um, I think that that's dumb. Frankly, there are groups that come here that get discriminated against, but they rise up the economic ladder very quickly within a generation. African Americans don't rise up the ladder. Women are discriminated against because they are women. And Native Americans are discriminated against because they're Native American. And, they, and, and it lasts for generations. And we've historically stolen from them everything, including their entire country. Um, that's different than somebody calling you a dirty Arab and then two generations later your kids are in medical school um, and, and or running for office and, and you know whatever. So I think that there's an issue here. I, I'm not a, a fan of us pushing for uh, cutting up the affirmative action pie. I don't want to compete with African Americans uh, for affirmative action rights. But do you, they I mean deserve it and I'm not sure that we need it, number one. Number two, we do have an ethnic question in the census that allows us to know who's of Arab descent and who's not, who's Lebanese or Syrian or Iraqi or you know whatever the category is. That those numbers get counted, so we have an idea. Numbers aren't perfect, but they give us a sense of where people are. Secondly, we also do our own uh, search because we have an Arabic surname database that we've worked on, um, and we run it against the voter lists. So we can actually pull out uh, Arab-American voters in several states. And we have the voter rolls that we can work with for phone banking, for going door to door, and for identifying them in our polling. And then finally is that we poll. We poll Arab-Americans to know who they want to support, what their issues are, and, uh, and then after an election, uh, actually who they did vote for. So we have a, a number of tools available to us to work with. Okay, so what are the um, where do Arab Americans generally stand in terms politically in this country? They all through the '90s up to 2000, they leaned Democrat. Leaned meaning two or three or four points uh, in the Democrats' favor, much like other ethnic groups: Italians, Irish, Polish, etc. Beginning in in 2000, the shift became quite dramatic, uh, pro in leaning in the Democratic direction. Even in that election in 2000 when Bush won, Arab Americans still identified mostly, not mostly, the plurality were Democrat. It was like 39, 37, something like that, Democrat. But then in 2002, the numbers began to open up. And in every two years we poll, uh, by today it's more than two, uh, it's about two and a half times Democrat over Republican, maybe 47% Democrat, 21% Republican. That's the voter ID. And then, in addition to that, the voter turnout is over 3 to 1 Democratic. We, 
Our numbers are not unlike Hispanic numbers or even Jewish numbers. Two to one, more than two to one Democrat in terms of identification and three to one Democrat in terms of actual vote. vote. I know a lot of young Arabs really were supporting Bernie Sanders' campaign and because he wasn't taking money from corporations, Wall Street. Um, and what do you think, as someone who understands political strategy and, and building movements and building parties in this country, about those who want who are living not in swing states, so those states who could lean either Democrat or Republican. Um, so for say for someone who lives in California who really, really wants to see a third party gain more traction, reach that 15% threshold in the polls so that they can actually be part of the debates and building parties that are not completely bought and sold. What do you think about the strategy of them voting, knowing they're not going to win, but at least building that movement? Look, I live in the District of Columbia. It's 85% Democrat. I'm still voting Democratic, and I'm going to be a part of the Democratic coalition because I can't look at my African-American neighbors and say, I ignored all of your concerns, and I voted uh, for somebody that had no chance of winning, and frankly, um, it, was a, it was a thrown-away vote. So you but think at it's the same a throw? Time, at the same time, I am joining our revolution which is the Bernie Sanders permanent organization that is being created to mobilize, to radically transform the Democratic Party and build a progressive movement within the party to make real change possible in America. That's what I'm doing. And I would encourage people to sign up. Uh, I'm doing a video for Bernie right now uh, to join ourrevolution.com. And to me, it's the best way to move forward. The energy started and the campaign continues. Uh, part of it will be done outside of the party. Part of it will be done inside the party. We want to elect uh, party chairs. We want to elect party national committee people. We want to elect officials around the country from city council and school board and mayors and governors, etc., who are progressive Democrats and change the party from the bottom up. That's what I want to do. And to me, that's the best route. You sap all that progressive energy out of the Democratic Party, it'll never change. But if you bring that progressive energy into the Democratic Party in an organized and disciplined fashion, it can make permanent change within the Democratic Party so that the Democratic Party 10 years from now is not the Democratic Party today. And, and what would you say to those people who are disillusioned and don't feel there's a purpose and feel that there's going to be endless war in the Middle East and they just throw their hands in the air and say, I can't do this. Israel controls everything. Drink another beer. Go to sleep. <laughs> and wake up tomorrow and think about life in a more serious way. I, I have no time for pessimism and cynicism. Look, I've been doing this for 40 years. If anybody should give up, I should give up. And sometimes my life feels like the myth of Sisyphus, you know, just keep rolling the stone up the hill and then it rolls back down and you're condemned to keep doing it over and over again. We don't have a choice. As long as there is suffering in the world, I don't have the luxury of saying, I can't do anything, nothing's going to change. I have to take it on myself, and I encourage people to take it on themselves to say, what can I do to make it better, even if I'm only making it a little bit better? I started a project in, in the early 80s called Save Lebanon. We brought wounded children over from Lebanon for medical treatment in the middle of the Civil War and after the Israeli bombardments of West Beirut. And people, some people in the community said, oh, it's just a drop in the bucket. And I said, but for the 63 kids we brought over who we gave artificial limbs or who we had eye surgery done for, or who, whose 
horrific scars from bombings were uh, were healed. It was not a drop in the bucket for them. It was the entire universe. It changed their lives. You can never tell me there's nothing to be done. There's nothing can, that can be done, even if it means adopting simply a homeless person in your town and and giving them the food they need one night to survive. That's something. I mean, it, it, to me, it's just the height of absolute arrogance uh, and self-absorption to say, I can't do anything, nothing's going to change, I'm going to ignore it. As long as there's suffering in the world, you have a choice. You can do something about it or you can ignore it. And I can't ignore it and I encourage people to pay attention to what they can do, even in a very little personal way, to make it better, at least for one person. Okay, and what and so what kind of resources does the Arab American Institute offer for those Arab Americans or any Americans who would like to learn more about how to be politically engaged? Look at our website, aaiusa.org, uh, and check out our site, the, the part of our site that says Yellow Vote, uh, and resources. We have issue resources, we have organizing tool resources, and we have voter registration resources. We've got a, a, a range of programs that you can be involved in. And we encourage everybody to, to be a part of what we're doing. On that note, thank you so much, Dr. Zogby, for coming on this show and giving us those unique insights. Thank you very much, Linda. Thank you. And that's all, folks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Arabi Yat. Our theme song is by Muqata'a. The song is called Ahyat. You can listen to more of his stuff at soundcloud.com slash B-O-I-K-U-T-T. You can email us at A-R-A-B-I-Y-A-A-T at kpfa.org. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Until next time, I'm Linda Khoury, producing this episode for you from KPFA Studios in Berkeley, California.